Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You know how in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes of seeing through a glass darkly? Well, I left my regular glasses down in my car in the parking lot. I have my prescription sunglasses on. And and Cat Pastor, our technical producer, said, you know, whatever you whatever you have when you get all the way up here, that's what you have. You shouldn't go back and get your other things. So I, I've left those there, and I actually can't see anything very well. I see I'm seeing through a glass darkly. That's all I'm really saying. Uh, but that may explain various disfluencies and cognitive misfires that happened during the show today, or they may be attributable to my normal state. We'll find out, or maybe we'll never know. But it's time to talk not about that. Well, let me first of all mention that in the second segment of today's show, we will talk about the possible need to rebrand or otherwise recast Smokey the Bear. As Smokey the Bear's initial presentation, which began some 75 or so years ago, outlived its usefulness and is it, I don't know, is it not really up to the challenges of the modern wildfire situation? I think that's the real key there. And then in the final segment, we will talk about kind of the reverse thinking uh, uh, or, uh, or how to reverse the thinking that we ordinarily do about exoplanets. In other words, we spend a lot of time, not you and me particularly, but uh, the human race spends a lot of time looking out towards other galaxies, seeing stars that uh, could possibly have exoplanets, maybe detecting those exoplanets, then maybe trying to figure out if those exoplanets are anything like us, you know, all that kind of stuff. But how about thinking about what our planet looks like from a similar range? That's essentially what we'll be talking about in the third segment. So all of these things are about rethinking a thing. Um, And uh, the first segment is going to be about rethinking something much more basic to your life, uh, and that is cavities. Cavities in your mouth. Caries. Dental caries, uh, as it is properly known. Here to help us do that is Maggie Kurth, a senior science writer for 538. Uh, She has recently written Why People Who Brush Still Get Cavities. Maggie Kurth, welcome to our show. Hi. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, let's begin. We can just sort of begin there that any dentist will tell you that uh, that he or she uh, has patients who seem to be very good about brushing and flossing and all that kind of stuff, but they get cavities anyway, despite everything that we've been told since we were you know, in grade school. So this is one of the questions that you looked into, right? Right. So I am one of those people who seems to be particularly cavity prone, despite what I do. And I have at least one of my children who seems like she might be in that same sort of category. And so I got kind of curious about it because one of the dentists at her most recent visit mentioned that um, you can, this is something that can be inheritable. And I was kind of curious like what that meant what was known about it and then I remembered that my job is writing about science so I could just (laughs) go do a story about it and (laughs) research to my heart's content um and what I ended up finding was really interesting I mean you know that 
cavities are caused by bacteria that are basically like as they digest sugars and carbohydrates on your teeth, they're breaking down the enamel on the tooth and kind of making these little indentations and holes into it. But you don't really think about like what that means to have that be caused by bacteria. And one of the really interesting things that I found out is that there are specific bacteria that are associated with having more cavities. And that when scientists first started finding this out in the mid 20th century and doing experiments around it, one of the things they found out is that you can take animals that are not particularly prone to cavities, put them in a pen with animals that are, and then the animals that weren't getting cavities will start to get them. And that basically cavities and or rather the bacteria that cause them are transmissible. Which is, I think, startling to most people. The idea that uh, you right. could the, ca <laughs> the, the cavities are like cooties, uh, which have been also very uh, scientifically studied. The idea that you could pass your cavities, your pre your predilection for cavities, uh, to uh, another human being uh, is not the way we think about these things very much. And it may also explain why you and your daughter seem to share this this problem. I mean, either she inherited it from you genetically, or possibly. Just, you know, you, you gave it to her the way you'd give her a cold, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and or at least we don't we don't know for certain about that. Like, that's one of the interesting things also is that this is a space where the researchers know that cavities are very tied to the microbiome in your mouth, to the bacteria that live there. And there is all of this evidence that is making correlational connections between having more cavities and having these specific kinds of bacteria, like not just in individuals now, but like you can kind of go back and see that at times in human history, you know, cavities are actually a fairly newish thing in human life. If you go back to pre-industrial societies and you look at the bones there, there's not nearly the rate of cavities that there are now. And if you go back even further, pre-agricultural societies, like cavities are almost non-existent. And you also are, like researchers are also able to kind of take these samples of ancient historical plaque and see, you know, correlations between those same bacteria strains and, you know, the rise of cavities in human history. But we don't know whether, like, we don't know what's causing what, right? Like, we don't know whether something changed that made those cavity, like, those bacteria more prevalent, or whether those bacteria became more prevalent and stuff changed because of them. So that's, that's kind of one of the things that's trying to get worked out and why this is not as simple as, like, well, just go get them better bacteria, because we don't necessarily know that that's the thing that has to change to fix it. Right. So we need to back up here. We're going too fast, I think, but for our oh, sorry. audience. Yeah. No, that's okay. Our audience is very quick on the uptake. 
take, but uh, even so. So let's go back and just sort of acknowledge that when people think, think about microbiome, if they think about anything, they think about the gut, you know, and that's why they right. take, they're taking a probiotic. They have no idea why they're taking a probiotic, but if they have any idea, they think it's, it's for my gut. So that's because that's where all the bacteria are. Well, the second largest collection uh, in your body uh, of, uh, of microflora of, of bacteria is the oral cavity, where there are over 700 species of bacteria. Uh, there are um, fungi, viruses, protozoa, all kinds of microbiome things. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them haven't decided yet. Some of them are taking gap years to try to figure that out. But there's a <laughs> lot of them up there. Um, and, and so that's so that's the first thing. There's And so some of them do have this capacity basically to manufacture stuff but through a fermentation process that will then begin to attack your teeth and give you cavities. But I want to go back to, say, to the thing that you were saying because I just want to make sure people got it. So we do have the capacity uh, using you know finds of like Neolithic skulls and stuff like that to sort of say back when we were hunter-gatherers, Nuts, berries, sticks. Hey, this looks delicious. I don't know what it is. Let's try it. We just found it. Uh, we didn't really have cavities, right? I mean, when we went to right. a, a farming, an agrarian system, and probably a little bit more of a monocultural diet of grains and barleys and stuff like that, that's when the first wave of trouble started, correct? Correct. And then you get another wave of trouble um, after the Industrial Revolution when sugar becomes right. – Fruit loops. Much more available. Yeah. Right. It's the fruit we, loops. Yeah. The fruit loops. We went from grains <laughs> we went from grains and barley to fruit loops and frosted flakes. And so right away you know you're gonna get some problems. Although I just made it sound like it's sugar. And that's you know, that that may play a role. But the other thing that we're finding is that this this kind of occasionally stable and occasionally unstable mix of uh, of microbial life in your mouth changes. And in fact, it changes in a way that slightly mirrors. Maybe I'm, you can tell me if you think I'm forcing uh, or stretching this comparison. But, you know, we've sort of watched what's happened in America with the Delta strain uh, of and, and other previous mutations uh, of the coronavirus. And now the Delta strain is like taken over and it's 70, 75 percent uh, of the coronavirus of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, in, in the U.S. Well, there's sort of there's kind of a war going on, right, uh, in inside your mouth. Really. Who's going to be in charge? And it's it goes on over centuries and centuries and centuries. And so there are some bacteria that are kind of a big in charge of the prison yard inside your mouth that, that weren't such big deals, say, two, three hundred years ago, right? Right. And some of that has to do, like you're, you're not wrong that some of it has to do with sugar, with the carbohydrates which break down into sugars, because those are things that those bacteria that cause cavities particularly like to eat and they also help to create a you know a chemical um, environment in your mouth that's more favorable to the kind of bacteria that cause cavities you know bacteria respond to ph levels so acidity versus base you know kind of um, if something is acidic acidic we're talking about like you know like lemon juice kind of versus baking soda, that kind of scale. And the more acidic your mouth is, the more acidic your environment there is, the more friendly it is to the cavity-causing bacteria. And that's something that those sugars and those carbohydrates contribute to. Right. So, I mean, if we... Okay, now I'm going to speed uh, speed us back up again. So if we're Mm going to think about this idea that maybe 
maybe it's the, well, pretty clearly, the microbiome uh, of our mouths, of our oral areas, uh, they, this has something to do with whether or not uh, the, the process of transmitting caries and causing tooth decay can kind of overcome, overcome even good dental hygiene. Um, you know, then the question becomes, well, what could we possibly do about it? And then, you know, some of us would think, as you did, well, I mean, one possible analogy about microbiomes would be fecal tra- transplants because we, we know, I think starting you know, longer ago than we think. I think like maybe in the late, late 1950s, they may have even... I, actually, in non-Western civilizations, there's been a lot of stuff going on with this for thousands of years. But trying to t- treat C. diff, which is an incredibly dangerous disease, which often places people in critical condition uh, with not too many great ideas for remedies, we started essentially messing around with that microbiome by putting somebody else's feces in there, which is not a very appealing idea to transfer up to the mouth area, but it would be, <laughs> it would be done, you know, it would be done tastefully, uh, but it's, it's it, but it's not going to be done at all, right? Right. I mean, it's not, that's not something that the scientists that study this microbiome are advocating for at this point, largely because, you know, as I said, there's still a lot of, we don't understand about the causalities. And we also know that your microbiome in your mouth changes over the course of your life, over the course of a day. It's not like one stable thing. So we don't know like what the right thing should be. And we also don't know that like putting one type of bacteria in there is going to mean that that bacteria wins out depending on like all of these other things. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that's still unknown and their basic, what the, you know, people who study this and the oral oral health specialists who study this have talked told me is that right now we're at the stage where we're making connections, not at the stage where we're necessarily solving problems. And that the best ways we know to solve the problems right now are still the kind of stuff that we all learned as children, which is eating less sugar and carbs and brushing your teeth. And because those things actually, it turns out, also affect the pH, which affect what bacteria are there. So you can change it, just not with anything other than what you're already doing. Right. So uh, other people have thought about this too, uh, Maggie. Right. And, and in every, any, any case, what a situation like this needs is a visionary. Uh, we're going to be talking. We're yes. going to be. We're going to be talking about Archimedes in the final segment. Uh, we might be calling Smokey the Bear a visionary in the second segment. Not clear, but there was a man who stood. Who stu- Sometimes there's a yes. man. Sometimes there's a man who comes forward. This is such a guy solution. So we have. Oh my God! It's such a guy solution. It's such a. It, it's such an amazingly guy solution. And what I mean by this is that it's sort of. It's the kind of solution that somebody came up with where they forgot to at Hooters. It was it was right. they, yeah, they were exactly. at they were at Hooters and they sketched this idea out on a cocktail napkin. So this is a guy named Rob Knight, uh, director of the Center for Microbiome oh, Innovation at the University of California in San Diego, who was approached right, he, by approached by a dentist in Colorado yes. who wanted his help. And and the dentist's idea was, what if we had really attractive women with great teeth make out with people with not so great teeth? Right. You'll note that the people here, <laughs> like who's, who's deciding who's the people yeah. and who's deciding who, what makes these women attractive. Like there's, there's many things wrong with this scenario before you even you get think? to the part where like, would this even work? It did not like, 
you know, Dr. Knight told me about this and it just, I, I died laughing hearing about this proposed experiment. It did not actually go anywhere because strangely you could not get the approval by the review board to do this. I, though I think it has been greenlighted as a reality series on HBO Max next year. So, so, Probably. Yeah. Well, and like the other, the other thing that is really interesting about this is like, there's no evidence that it wouldn't go it wouldn't like work the other way right like, you might just be giving attractive women cavities <laughs> I, <laughs> right is what this might work out as two three hundred years down the line people could be looking at this as a very wrong turn that civilization right. took you ruined you ruined the teeth of america's attractive women <laughs> right so you know i mean uh, the the takeaway from this right now because we always look for takeaways uh sure. it's kind of boring right it's like you should do what you are always supposed to do I, so it's kind of boring, but it's kind of it, for me. What it did was help me sort of understand how what I am already doing has systemic effects rather than just immediate effects. Like I, I knew that brushing your teeth was good for you, but I thought it was just because you were clearing the plaque off. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to me that that was also changing the pH balance, which was changing the environment that the bacteria grow in. So that helps sort of understand why consistency matters, because if you're inconsistently brushing your teeth, well, you're not keeping that environment in a good place. Um, so that I think ends up helping, helped me sort of like understand the bigger picture behind why those things work and what you sort of want to do about them. Um, and it also kind of helped sort of pin down a little bit better, you know, why you're wanting to do like all of those things and not just like, oh, I'm brushing my teeth right now, but I'm still eating lots of sugary things and or I'm eating lots of sugary things, but I'm not necessarily brushing my teeth as, as well. Like doing all of that together, the more things you can do, it stacks up. Right. And this is sort of a timely piece too, because there may be any number of people who have delayed dental checkups uh, during the pandemic. So oh, yeah. they're about to, you know, either get some really great news or some really bad news. Uh, I'm going to say two words to you uh, about your own situation or possibly one hyphenated word. I'm not sure because it's a brand. Water pick. Ever since I got a water pick, I have had way fewer problems. I have a sort of standard, you know, United Kingdom, my Irish-American teeth. Uh, <laughs> although there's like a whole study debunking that too, that, that actually British people actually have better teeth than most people. But uh, but the water pick has really helped me a lot. So uh. I, I know that there is, I, I didn't read about this for the story, but I know that there is research out there that like electric toothbrushes just generally yeah. will do a better job because yes. you don't, but then water pick. You don't clean. You don't clean as well right. as the little scrubbing thing does. Right. But the water pick is like even a whole other, and it's actually kind of enjoyable to use too. So, uh -huh. um, so oh, I have I have a suggestion for you. We have, we hmm. have to go, but I have a suggestion. Not that I have any business telling five thirty eight science writers <laughs> what they should be doing. But since you're interested in this pH thing, I I ran into this in a really weird way, and I may actually not be stating it correctly. In which case. I'll get email maybe. But, you know, I think relatively least recently in the course of medicine, like I'm thinking maybe, you know, in the last, say, 40 to 50 years, they've begun to look much more with much greater interest in the pH of blood. 
And there was some, there's some guy who's associated, whose name is all over it. Some guy named McSweeney or something like that, who is like the McSweeney effect or something. But like there was something that was, I, the way I understand it, not of interest, uh, particularly anyway, to Western clinicians for a really long time. And they're thinking, you know, actually, maybe it does matter what the pH of the blood is. So anyway, if you have a boring afternoon, you can look into that. Yeah. All right. Well, Maggie yeah. Kurth, great fun to talk to you. Um, Thank you so much. And the article is wonderful, and we didn't cover all of it. So you should read Maggie Kurth's uh, article called Why People Who Brush Still Get Cavities. And that's at the site 538. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Smokey the Bear. I'm going to tell you something that you didn't know about me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. So uh, presumably you don't need me to tell you that we have uh, gone through uh, years and years now of just terrible, terrible uh, escalating wildfires. Um, and there are a lot of things we need to do about that, uh, a lot of things that we can do to help with that. Uh, but this is one that we hadn't thought about before. Uh, now joining us is Jennifer Oldham, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Her latest story for National Geographic is Does Smokey Bear uh, need a makeover to prevent more wildfires. First of all, first of all, uh, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Second of all, we need to figure out whether it's Smokey Bear or Smokey the Bear. But you're le- <laughs> you're leaning Smokey Bear. You know, it's funny. The beginning of my conversation with the um, folks that manage the Smokey Bear campaign included that question, <laughs> and there is no the. It is not Smokey the Bear. It is Smokey Bear. See, now I'm going to declare something about myself. Uh, in circa 1962, uh, in my third grade pi- fire prevention pageant, I was Smokey the Bear. And, and the song, anyway, goes, are you ready? With a ranger's hat and shovel and a pair of dungarees, you will find me in the forest always sniffing at the breeze. So, rem- so remember to be careful when I tell you to beware, because everybody knows that I'm the fire preventing bear. Smokey the bear, Smokey the bear, rowling and a-prowling and a-sniffing the air. I can find a fire before it starts to flame. That's why they call me Smokey. That was how I got my name. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, the, 
<laughs> in that situation, maybe it's just for the syncopation or something with Smokey the Bear. I'm just saying. You're overcome with emotion, I know. I, I, and you, you, you you, can, I think you could do one of these uh, gas station screen spots. There you go. Well, you better you, – first of all, I, I can tell you're overcome with emotion right now, and if you can't talk for a second, that's okay. But tell, when, when you say gas station spot, you should say what it is that you mean. Sure. Uh, so one of the things the Smokey Bear folks have done recently is try to reach different audiences. They're particularly going for millennials on gas station screens and they're using different 30 second spots uh, that they have created with the ad council featuring celebrities voices that are channeled through Smokey's head. Um, and you can watch those online as well. They're linked on the Smokey Bear website. Uh, and they basically urge people to beware of things they do that could cause a wildfire, like parking in tall grass or burning their trash when it's windy outside or letting embers escape from their uh, charcoal grills or campfires. Right. So we really need to hit this part hard that, you know, I think people hear that there's more wildflower, well, more wildfires than they say, well, you know, it's global warming, it's whatever, you know. But the truth is human agency is at the root of some incredibly high percentage of these wildfires. Human negligence is probably a better word than agency, but just people being idiots, uh, however we want to characterize that, uh, is is a big part of the problem. Maybe you could say more. I think it's it has to do a lot with awareness. I think so many people now are moving into these areas that are really close to wooded landscapes and they've never lived in that situation before and they just really honestly don't realize that some of the things they do could spark a wildfire. I heard a story about someone who caused a wildfire while they were mowing their lawn when it was 100 degrees outside because their lawnmower hit a rock and that created a spark and caught the field on their house, next to their house and on fire. So a lot of this is just creating awareness and educating people about when you live in wooded areas, you need to be more mindful of even your daily activities uh, because you could start a wildfire. Right. So let's give an example of this. We're going to hear actually a PSA. It's a Canadian forestry PSA. It's really technically Smokey's Canadian brother, Lothlin, uh, but I think he just identifies as Smokey here. That's why the word out is, of course, mispronounced because Canadians don't know how to say that word. Let's uh, hear B1 cat. It only takes a careless moment to turn this into this. Don't let forest fires be your fault. Make sure your fire is dead out. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. That's that's Smokey there at the end. So, or, or Laughlin. Um, so, um, I mean, one argument that you're making is that Smokey, by being... Smokey, I think it's not just Smokey. I think it's also Frankenstein. Fire, bad. If, you know, if you're just saying fire, bad, fire, bad, fire, bad, you might be missing some important subtleties. And, and that, that's the question, right? Is, has Smokey been uh, not sort of subtle and granular enough in his opposition to all fire? Yeah, and that's been an argument that has been occurring more often as fire scientists and 
land managers try to educate the public that there is such a thing as good fire and that a lot of the fire that we're experiencing right now is happening in the wrong places at the wrong times. And in order to fight some of this bad fire, you need to use good fire, which is planned. So you set prescribed burns when the weather is better and you can control them in order to get rid of a lot of the flammable material that could cause a fire later on. And that's a big shift in thinking for people who have been brought up to think all fire is wrong. I should note though that Smokey's handlers really have an aversion to the bear being charged in any way with having helped the whole fire suppression policy. They say the bear has nothing to do with setting policy. Yeah, well, I think they're, they're probably correct about that. It's also hard to imagine him singing. So remember to be careful when I tell you, to, oh, no, I have to do it. So remember to be careful when you hear him say, Prescribe burns, remove excess fuel in a controlled way. You know, it's very difficult. It's not really. It's a good. It's a good point. It's a good message. I just question whether he's the person to get it get it across. Um, so um, that, now another question is that, like Smokey the Bear, like anybody else who's been around a really long time, is getting kind of taken for granted. You know, and and he doesn't really necessarily resonate with the younger generation. With you know. Uh, and and so one of the things that they're doing is because they feel like nobody listens to Smokey anymore is they think, well, who who would be somebody that the kids would listen to? Somebody young and fresh and redolent of, of hip hop culture. Someone like, oh, I don't know, Kat, how about Betty White? Honorary Forest Ranger Betty White here, lending a hand to my dear friend Smokey Bear, because for years he's only said... Only you can prevent wildfires. But there's a lot more to say. Like, if you park your car on tall, dry grass, the hot exhaust pipe can start a wildfire. So keep the animals safe, especially the cute shirtless one. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Did she just call Smokey the Bear a cute shirtless animal? (laughs) I think so. Did she just sexualize and objectify Smokey the Bear? How can that be okay? (laughs) So explain a little bit what the strategy is here. So you're right. The the, um, folks that work with Smokey day in and day out, including the uh, National Association of State Foresters, they have done lots of focus groups where they ask different ages of folks if they pay attention to Smokey and They've found that particularly people in the 18 to 34 age range say they know who Smokey is and they know what he stands for, but they don't pay any attention to him. So this is these PSAs featuring celebrities are their attempt to get younger generations to pay attention to Smokey and really think about what he's saying. It's one thing to hear it, but to really internalize what he's saying and change their behavior and that's the tricky thing about this now is these prevention campaigns is getting people to really change their behavior because everyone has their habits and doesn't really think that they can do things on their own to prevent fires. And so that's what the smoky folks are trying to um, encourage people to think more about. 
Let's give some two examples of, of behavior that really needs to change. The first one would be campfires. Campfires uh, are are associated with a lot of these wildfires, ill-tended, not put out when people left campfires. And not only that, but when they've sort of, sort of gone looking for unattended campfires, they're finding an awful lot of them, whether they've caused wildfires or, or not. So maybe you could say a little bit more about this. Yeah, and one of the things I discovered in reporting the piece was a surprising to me, and I've lived in the West my whole life and camped and backpacked in the West my whole life, but um, some fire protection folks down in New Mexico in the Santa Fe National Forest went out looking uh, for unintended fires over Mother's Day weekend this year and found 30 instances of places where people had left fires unattended. Um, and not only were they ash, they were actually flaming fires. So mm. part of the issue here, these land managers think, is that people just aren't educated about how when you go into the woods, you need to dump at least five gallons of water on a fire and you need to shovel some dirt on top of that. And then you need to wait and make sure it cools down and goes out. So. These are things people need to educate themselves about and land managers need to make sure people understand. And I think a big part of that is enforcement as well. Just having the actual staff to get out there and talk to people, which, as you probably know, in national parks and national forests is difficult because federal agencies just are severely understaffed. Absolutely. Like a lot of other places. Yeah. Maybe so. another part of the problem is maybe we made Smokey the Bear too nice. Maybe we need a commercial where... You know, some people are, you know, walking away from a flaming campfire and he rushes out of the woods and tears out one of their throats. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it seems like maybe that they would get the message. Uh, people would be a little bit more. I think, you know, just being nice all the time and sniffing the air. It, it's so, so we have, I, I want to make sure we cover another thing here before we run out of time, because it's also very important. Uh, and that is fireworks. And we seem to have gone even more fireworks crazy as a nation during the time of the pandemic. Uh, these are bad news in wildfire prone or in really in any area. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. A lot of folks, I'm sure, during COVID have realized that the personal sale of fireworks has really increased quite a bit and people's ability to get their hands on their own arsenal is really easy now, um, alarmingly easy. And you don't even need to go to an organized fireworks show to see one. They're happening right in front of your house. So I, it, particularly in the West. And so these fire scientists I spoke with for the piece, they actually coordinated uh, some of their colleagues to write a letter that appeared in a lot of newspapers urging communities across the West to cancel organized fireworks as well as stop selling personal fireworks. And the fire scientists I spoke with for the piece say, you know, they think it's their responsibility now to step up and advocate more often for people just to stop that, that fireworks are not a good thing. Um, they do cause fires and People need to rethink how we celebrate the 4th of July. Right. I'm thinking the same thing, same kind of message. Smokey comes up behind a kid who's messing around with fireworks. 
and drags him by the T-shirt into the woods and his screams fill the night air. And I think that we get the message. All right. I just want to say one last thing. It's not necessarily in your article, although you do allude to it. But we did a whole show a while back about beavers. And it turns out beavers create these natural fire breaks. They, they actually create areas that are very, very difficult, that, that make it difficult for fires to spread. And all anybody is ever trying to do is get the beavers out of there. The beavers are flooding this, blow up their dam, get, you move them. We should be, I, I, my, my suggestion would be Smokey should have a beaver friend who should be in some of the commercials. There you go. Right. Uh, it's definitely true. I mean, there's a lot of science that has shown that you put beavers back on the landscape and they not only help keep some of that flammable brush down, they also create wetlands that help prevent fires. So I definitely do think that's something, I'm particularly in Oregon, where people are, are looking at that. Yeah. So uh, Smokey the Bear and I don't know. Aqua the beaver. We have to come up with a better name. But uh, all right. So I think that's about as much as we can do right now uh, as we continue to save the planet. We're going to look at the planet from a different angle uh, in, in the final segment. But thanks to Jennifer Oldham, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Her latest story for National Geographic is Does Smokey Need a Makeover to Prevent More Wildfires? Rebranding. Again, rebranding. All right. We'll be back. Listen to smoke before you give it a try. Only you. Don't play with matches. Don't play with fire. Fire. Cause there's nothing very funny about three dots, buddy. Nothing very nice. On a homeless mind. So if a gorgeous force is what you desire, don't play with matches. All right. By the way, we need a new name for these kinds of shows. Um, we used to call them The Scramble, but it turns out that Betsy Kaplan owns the rights to that, and we're actually in a $12 million lawsuit with her right now. So we need a new name. Maybe some fusion name like Smorgaspuri, you know, or or, <laughs> or I know I can't do it. Never mind. We need a new name. So if you have a new name, send it to Colin at ctpublic.org. All right. Uh, I have to say thank you to our technical producer, Kat Pastor. I not only, not only have to, I want to uh, for making the show sound so great. She's here in the studios with me. Jonathan McPants produced this episode. Uh, and now it is time to talk about the Earth. But the Earth thought of differently. Uh, and to, here to help us do that is Jamie Green, uh, the associate editor uh, for uh, Future Tense. Her book, The Possibility of Life, about how we might imagine alien life in science and in fiction, will be published in 2023. She has an article in Slate called If the Earth Isn't Special, Then the Whole Cosmos Is. Um, and she's joining us right now. Hi. Hi. Well, before we go any further, uh, let's uh, get this guy uh, out of the way. Cat C1. That's here. That's home. That's us. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. That, of course, is Carl Sagan. Uh, and so this is sort of part of what we're wanting to have a conversation about right now. Uh, typically, we are looking out 
uh, at the, uh, the rest of the universe and looking out towards other galaxies, looking at anywhere we can, and wondering if there's any other life on exoplanets. But what is being suggested here, as I understand it, is at least partly to try to imagine Earth as it is seen from a comparable distance? Yeah, absolutely. From either another planet that we think is out there or just the general vague somewhere far away. So um, uh, how do we do that? I mean, in other words, how do we approximate Earth, uh, what it would look like to a faraway observer? I guess in order to answer that question, we have to remind people how we do it when we're looking out the normal way. How we do what? Well, I'm like, like, like if, we're, if we're looking for if we're looking from here and looking out for exoplanets, oh, yeah. like um, how do we look for yeah. other planets yeah. from Earth? So there are a few ways that we do that. Um, the most common is what's called the transit method, which is we point a telescope at a distant star for a long period of time, and if we see the star's brightness dip, just get a little bit dimmer, um, in a way that has nothing to do with the star itself, that can be attributed to a planet passing in front of the star between us and the star and making a tiny eclipse and just dimming the star's light. And so that's called the transit method. That's how we've found about roughly 70% of the exoplanets that we've found. We can take direct images of planets, but it's really difficult. And those are really rare ways to find planets because stars are huge and bright and planets are very small and dim. So it's mostly the transit method. We can also detect planets by looking at how they make their stars wobble just a tiny bit because of the gravitational pull between the star and the planet. Um, and so we can detect that little wobble either in the star's motion or through the Doppler effect of the star's color shifting a tiny bit red or a tiny bit blue. So I think to use your uh, elegant phrase, what we're really doing is turning data into worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, that's an idea that I got from an anthropologist named um, Lisa Masseri, who wrote a fantastic book about basically how scientists do that. You know, the when, when we talk about the transit method, there's a sort of U-shaped graph that's very common where the horizontal, I can't believe I'm describing a graph on the radio, but <laughs> where the horizontal line is the star's steady brightness, and then you have this little U-shaped dip in it, and that's where the planet is. But what I learned is that that's not the direct printout from a telescope. That requires a ton of cleaning and processing of the data, clearing out noise, and a lot of like really interpretive work to turn data into a graph that is then turned in the imagination into a planet. So now uh, let's introduce another uh, thinker about this, and that is Lisa Kaltenegger. And, and she uh, is asking the question that we kind of started this conversation with, like, who, who might be out there who knows that the Earth is here? Uh, and some of it almost has to do with the, the right conditions for a view of anything, right? I mean, it's like if you're sitting in an audience uh, and um, Shaquille O'Neal is sitting or even Erica Badu with a big uh, head thing is sitting in front of you, you're not going to see that much of the opera. And, and if we could imagine space as an opera, there are just times you could see the Earth from planet X and times that you couldn't, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because the transit method requires the Earth the exoplanet and the star that the exoplanet orbits being lined up so that the planet can come in between us and the star. So you have to be looking at that solar system edge on, which is just one 
angle. You know, most stars and other planets that we see are not going to be at the right angle. So we are only able to see stars and that have their planets lined up the right way for us. And similarly, if there is someone on an exoplanet looking for us, they might be able to see the sun, but they would only be able to detect the Earth through the transit method if we're lined up edge on like that. Right. And so uh, it, um, all of this stuff takes a place over vast expanses of time uh, as well. It's not as though they can see us now, uh, at the same now that the, that they're experiencing as well. But I think it might be helpful if we kind of tried to use an example. And I think the right example is Ross 128. So tell us about Ross 128. Yeah, Ross 128 is a, a star. It's a small, dim red star. And it has a planet in orbit in its habitable zone. We know that there is a planet there. Um, and what Lisa Kaltenegger found in her research, and I want to make sure that I get the exact right numbers for Ross, is that um, if there is someone on the planet orbiting Ross 128, they started, they came into a position where they were able to detect the Earth through the transit method about 3,000 years ago, but they moved out of that position around the year 1100. So th this is because, you know, the galaxy is spinning, it's orbiting, stars are moving within it. So we're always changing our position relative to other stars. So what this paper that she published in June did was previous work has looked at, you know, what stars are facing Earth in the right direction that they could see us with the transit method. With new data from uh, the Gaia mission, which is just this big star mapping project, Kaltenegger was able to set this in time. And so she looked at from now 5,000 years back to 5,000 years in the future, which stars are going to be in position to see Earth moving into position, moving out of position, and just sort of expanding the view and animating it through time. Right. And so, I mean, she uh, she and you suggest, I mean, hoping we're hoping, first of all, that on the Rossian ex exoplanet, they keep very good records. Uh, and so they, they remember what they saw uh, or thought they might have seen a long, long time ago. And now they pick up something else. Right. Uh, as you suggested, radio waves or something in the same area. And they're thinking, huh, let me just go through the record. Yeah, no, there was something we saw way back, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah, I mean, it would require a lot of continuity in culture and in science and for a civilization to last a long time. But even thinking about, uh, you know, imagining a technological civilization lasting for a few thousand years is really encouraging to us because we've been, you know, technological for depending on how you count it, like 200 years, maybe. Right. So um, we should also, because I, I love her thought experiment, the whole question of who would be interested in us and the way that she does uh, does this, what is she asks uh, when she teaches classes, uh, she, she sort of posits two hypothetical exoplanets and says, which one do you want to go see? But tell us more about that. Yeah. So this is a, a really great way of, of answering the question like, OK, so if there are other civilizations out there, why haven't we heard from them? Why hasn't anyone come to visit us? If they can all see us, like, hello, come, we want to know that you're out there. And so the way that Kaltenegger frames it is, imagine that you found two exoplanets and you're getting signals that both of them probably have life just from the chemistry of their atmosphere. One of the planets is 5,000 years older than us and one is 5,000 years younger and you only have the money and resources to go to one. Which one do you want to go to? And 
every single time, of course, her planet, her students want to go to the older planet because you think that that's if there's a civilization there, they could be more advanced than us. They could have knowledge to share with us. We could learn from them. While Earth is going to be younger than every technological civilization that could detect us. So maybe we're just not that interesting yet. True, although it all assumes, you know, a comparable set of emotional states uh, for these people out there. They could be like really depressed people or creatures who would think, oh, I don't want to go to the really advanced planet. They wouldn't even like me anyway. We should go to this other planet that probably isn't. They probably don't think they're so cool. Maybe they would. And so like that us. they can feel better about themselves exactly. in comparison. <laughs> exactly. So we have to end with speaking of feeling better about ourselves. The other question is uh, if anybody's watching out there and they're using even more sophisticated measurement techniques than we have, they might be noticing that we're having a few problems here, uh, particularly with our climate. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's another thing that Kaltnegger talks about. I mean, this isn't in her scientific paper, but we talked about this when I interviewed her, is that she likes thinking about the idea of there being someone out there who noticed us a thousand years ago, maybe a billion years ago. They could tell that our planet was starting to bubble up life and oxygen, and they've been keeping an eye on us. And they see that, oh, 200 years ago, we started developing steam engines, and then my numbers are probably wrong, but 60 or 70 years ago, we developed radio technology and started sending out signals. And then, oh, they saw that, you know, the the hole in the ozone layer, but we patched that up and, oh, no, there's climate change. And she she suggests this idea that even if we haven't gotten messages from them, they might be out there rooting for us and how wonderful that would be that someone else out there is hoping that we make it through. Right, that they could be actually cheerleading uh, for us, and we also don't know what impresses them. Right, they could have been, they could have recently gone. Oh wow, look, they're streaming now. <laughs> streaming is so great, you know, because it's really that just opens up a whole lot of other entertainment possibilities, and maybe they'll stay home and not create, not waste so much carbon. And I mean, they might actually sort of know the answer. But anyway, this is a fascinating idea. The the whole idea of what. What do we look like uh, from from other perspectives? Um, and uh, I want to thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. We've been talking to Jamie Green, associate uh, editor of Future Tense. Uh, her book, The Possibility of Life, about how we imagine alien life in science and fiction, will be published in 2023. Okay. So as we end here, I really want to encourage you to um, think of a new name for it. So these shows... So, like they're, we you know what they're called in the business called magazine shows. Yeah, magazine. I, I can't stand that. All right. So I mean, it's sort of the shows where we we do one thing, then we do another thing, and then we do another thing. Um, so we've done a few of these recently. We used to do these and kind of call it a scramble, but I think we need a better name. So if you send uh, your ideas to me, Colin at ctpublic.org, I will give. <laughs> <laughs> I will find a prize to give you if you come up with a really good one. I'm laughing because somebody, for the first time in 12 years, I think, somebody wrote to the station and asked if they could have an autographed photo of me. <laughs> and it turns out this touched off, you know, a crisis because we don't, no one has ever wanted one before. What are we supposed to do about that? And, and the other thing that was weird about it was the who the person or person, if that's the right word, who asked for it, was living actually on a planet orbiting Ross 128. So it wasn't even from around. We have to figure out how, to, how are we going to get the photo all the way out there? It's one headache after another. Thanks very much for listening today. Far outside of ours, strange and mystical worlds with wonders beyond imagination. Keep looking at the stars and maybe you'll discover one.